What does motion sound like? With Kizik Hands Free Shoes, it sounds a little something like this. Experience the magic of motion. Get a free pair of socks with your first order at kizik.com slash socks. The longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed? Also 76 yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters, both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to another episode of New Books in Islamic Studies. I'm your host, Elliot Bazzano. For every program, we choose a new and exciting book and chat with the author. Today, I have the pleasure of speaking with Carla Bellamy about her wonderful book, The Powerful Ephemeral, Everyday Healing in an Ambiguously Islamic Place, University of California Press, 2011. In The Powerful Ephemeral, Carla Bellamy explores the role of saint shrines in India, while focusing on a particular venue known as Hussein Tekri, or Hussein Hill. Through her in-depth ethnographic research, Bellamy's monograph provides vivid description and analysis of the site, as well as first-person narratives of pilgrims, in order to offer a dynamic portrayal of the shrine complex. Bellamy shows how lines between religious communities are often fluid rather than fixed, She also problematizes notions of so-called spirit possession, interrogates the metaphysical power of frankincense, and articulates myriad perspectives on what healing might mean for those who visit Hussein Tekri and participate in its rituals. Bellamy's rich ethnography should appeal to numerous audiences, including those interested in South Asia, shrine culture, Islam, Indian religion, and Sufism. Well, thank you for agreeing to join us today, Carla. Thank you for having me. So I'd like to start out by asking you to tell us a little bit about your academic background and how you got interested in this topic of shrine culture in India. Okay. Uh, One of my undergraduate majors was religion. So I've had an interest in religion for a long time, though as an undergrad, it wasn't particularly focused uh, I was an undergrad at St. Olaf College. It's a liberal arts college in the Midwest. They have a huge and very uh, well-respected religion department, actually. Uh, so there were a lot of really important mentors I had there. Uh, then I took a little time off and decided maybe I did want to go to grad school. And I applied to a number of places. I ended up at Harvard Divinity School. Uh, so obviously at that point, as I began to become more interested in South Asia, I encountered Diana Eck, um, Ali Asane, were probably two people there who shaped my thinking quite a bit. Um, at that point, I was studying Sanskrit. Stephanie Jameson was there, so she was my first Sanskrit teacher. I took a little time off doing that degree because I wasn't sure I wanted to stay in academia, but then I decided I would. <laughs> and it was actually in a seminar with uh, Diana Eck that, uh, on pilgrimage that I first encountered Sufi St. Trine's uh, the topic of Sufi saint trines. And I was fascinated by them primarily because I couldn't think of an analog in, you know, the quote unquote West in Europe, in the United States, that is something that was sort of explicitly religious uh, and yet something that attracted people from different religious backgrounds. Uh, so I wrote uh, my big seminar paper in that class on the shrine, the very famous Darga in Ajmer. And uh, what I found at the time, and this is a while ago now, I guess, 97 maybe, was that there wasn't an awful lot written in English about Sufi St. Trines in India at all. Uh, so I think at that point, maybe I decided that that might be something I wanted to pursue further in a PhD program. 
I did my PhD at Columbia. Uh, Jack Hawley was my primary mentor. Uh, Columbia was kind of going through a period of time where they didn't have a steady Islamicist uh, there, actually. Um, problematic. <laughs> uh, but Nagin Yavari, who actually works on Iran, was there, and she was an invaluable guide to me in working on the culture of Muslim saint shrines in South Asia, just keeping me uh, informed about the sort of greater Islamic, I guess you could say, side of the culture of these places. So um, I guess that's how I got interested in the topic. It was something that sort of came out in the course of my master's studies and then became more focused when I was doing um, my PhD at Columbia. And can you tell us about where you did your field work and how long you were there? Yeah. Uh, so the the shrine that is the subject of my first book is in Madhya Pradesh, which is the sort of the landlocked central portion of India. The name literally means middle state. Um, the shrine is in the town of Jaura which was the capital of a princely state, a Muslim princely state of the same name up until the time of independence. Uh, the shrine Hussein Tekri, which literally means the hill of Hussein, uh, Hussein being, you know, from, from the early uh, period of Islamic history, uh, sort of the martyr of Karbala, that, that Hussein, uh, that, that shrine um, in Madhya Pradesh was the primary site of my research uh, in total, I, it's hard to say how much time I've spent there. I mean, it's definitely been two years in pretty big chunks, but the research relationship with that shrine started in, in 99 and has continued in one form or another until now. So, mm-hmm. yeah, it's a place that I I know well. Uh-huh. So when you first went there and began your ethnographic research, what kinds of questions did you set out to explore? Uh, my leading question is the one that I had sort of formed when I was still a master's student at Harvard. And that was, what is religion? Well, what does it mean? I think it was just more general, actually, at the beginning. What does it mean that there's this place that's ostensibly a religious place or a place of pilgrimage, something that I would categorize as a religious place anyway, that attracts people from different religious backgrounds. And then as I guess the research went on, I found that, among other things, Muslim saint shrines generally, Hussein Tegri in particular, were, were a wonderful site for kind of considering what religion as a category or as a phenomenon might mean in South Asia or, or maybe just in India. So I, I think that ultimately became the lead question or the guiding question of what became my first book. Mm-hmm. And so... Just now in, in the text as well, you use the term Muslim saint shrine. But yes. of course, it's more, much more complicated than that, which you go into some detail about. So could you say something about how this place that you study complicates common perceptions of religious identity and categories? Uh, yes. Let me think about how best to do that. <laughs> how to start. Um At the beginning of the book, almost immediately, I sort of confronted, as, as you point out, the sort of problem of terminology and what are we going to, what am I going to call this categorically? And as I explained at the beginning of the book, I chose the term Muslim saint shrine uh, with an awareness of sort of the problematic nature of sort of the generic term saint in English. It's, it's clear connection to Christian notions of sainthood, Catholic notions of sainthood, which are very, very different. Um, and as I explain in the beginning of the book, I, the reason, the primary reason that I chose to call them Muslim saint shrines is that it reflects sort of the generic language that people often used with me to describe what Hussein Tegri was, the generic term Darga, uh, being applied to uh, a wide range of shrines or types of shrine in South Asia, some that are more closely affiliated with the Shia community, uh, shrines that are affiliated with different Sufi lineages, uh, shrines uh, that are that are associated with a, a local religious figure who maybe wasn't formally attached to any Sufi lineage. So 
you could from the outside or from within any of those particular traditions make a distinction between one type of saint shrine and another, but from the outside or when people are sort of talking about going to these shrines for the purposes of healing particularly, they would use somewhat generic language. And so I chose in English to use that categorization and the language that I chose was Muslim saint shrine. Mm -hmm. So what about when you're chatting with people formally or informally in India about your project or even outside of India, and you talk about studying these Muslim saint shrines, do you, do conversations come up where you find yourself I mean, defending the categories that you've suggested or people saying, oh, well, that's not, that's not really true Islam or something like that? Yeah, pretty much every reaction you could imagine, which is a large part of what I write about in the book, is that Muslim saint shrines are, this is part of the reason the title, the subtitle of the book is Everyday Healing in an Ambiguously Islamic Place. Part of what I meant by ambiguously Islamic was just this, that depending on you know who you're talking to, either in South Asia or outside or in the South Asian diaspora, you're going to get almost any kind of reaction you could possibly imagine. Um, so anything from, yes, people saying this is not true Islam to people saying, uh, oh, well, this sounds like a very nice thing. And I didn't think Islam was nice at all. Or people saying these aren't really Muslim places. They only became Muslim after partition when identity became so politicized. And then, you know, the Muslims really asserted identity in a way they hadn't before. Those are three or four examples of the different ways uh, that people will conceptualize these shrines, depending on not only their ethnic and religious background, um, but also kind of where they are in their, their lives and their relationship with these shrines. Mm-hmm. So can you tell us a little bit about the history of the shrine that you focus on in particular? Yeah, I can. So Hussein Tekri, like I said, is this shrine um, built in the Muslim princely state of Jaura. Uh, I should also say, um, because I think it's interesting and important in some ways that I found this shrine. I talk about this as well in the book. Uh, back when I was doing advanced Hindi language study in Udaipur, the the woman in whose home I was a paying guest had a charismatic healing practice that she did um, on her roof on Thursday evenings. And over the course of the time that I lived with her, I, I sort of, I learned about her relationship with Hussein Tekri, which was the place that she had gone to to find healing when she had been facing some significant problems in her life many years earlier. So the 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 very short version of the origin of Hussein Tekri is recorded on um, the earliest the earliest version of the origin story is from a, a, a royal history that was commissioned by the royal family of the princely state of Jaura just a few years after the miraculous events that are understood to have caused it to come into existence, that has caused his integrity to come into existence. Uh, so according to this earliest account, in 1886, there was a concurrence of the Hindu festival of Dashara um, and the 8th, 9th, and or 10th of Muharram, that's obviously not something that would happen every year because of the way the Islamic calendar works. But that year, uh, it did happen. And it, it did, actually. If you go and you look at gazetteers from that time, you see that there was a coincidence of those two holidays. And there was some disagreement in Jaura about how to handle the Hindu and Muslim festivals on the streets of Jaura. And as a result of that disagreement in the farmland and or quote-unquote jungle outside of the town of Jaura proper, there's this miraculous appearance of people leading the Tazia procession uh, that should have taken place in Jaura, but leading it out sort of in the jungle. And the place where that miraculous um, Tazia procession is understood to have happened is the place where Hussein Tegri now stands. Uh, for I think most of the people listening to this will know uh, what a Tazia is, or certainly they'll know about sort of what's commemorated on the on the 8th and 10th of Muharram, the martyrdom of Hussein Karbala and members of his family. And in South Asia particularly, Tazia are sort of replicas of the tombs of the martyrs of Karbala that are carried in processions. Uh, there, this was there, So there's a state, Tazia and Jaura, and each Muslim caste community had its own, still does, in Jaura build their own, still do. Uh, mm-hmm. So the, the Tazia are sort of simultaneously symbols of sort of Hussein and his family and his martyrdom on the one hand, and also particular um, Muslim communities that are often caste, which are caste-based. 
So that's that. So so it's sort of a story of a conflict averted. There isn't there isn't a fight in Jauda, and there's this miraculous procession outside of Jauda, and it's after that that you have the building of the shrines, which are funded and actually not primarily by the princely state, but by uh, a segment of the Khoja community of Mumbai. Uh, the Khoja community is, as probably some people listening will know, an interesting subset of the Muslim community in South Asia. Many, but not all of them, are Ismaili. And um, that's sort of another long piece to the story, sort of how that Khoja community came to be affiliated with the Sunni princely state of Jaura and ultimately found or not found, but fund the, the shrines that, that the earliest uh, shrines that are sort of built on the site. In subsequent decades, different communities funded um, the building of different shrines in memory of different martyrs of Karbala on the site. But the oldest shrine there is something that traces its history to the Khojas of Mumbai, uh, a group of which still come to Hussein Tikri every year for the major uh, Muslim and particularly Shia holidays. Mm-hmm. So building off the rich, interesting history that you've been telling us about and how identity plays into that, what what types of people visit the shrine today or were visiting when you were doing your field work and why would why would people want to come to this place? Right. I guess there's sort of two things I want to say about that that are the most important. Uh, the first is the sort of with regard to how I wanted to do this research or perform this, you know, do this project, perform this research. When I was reading about the culture of Muslim saint shrines, it's it's duly noted in anything it was. Things have changed now. I think there's been some really wonderful scholarship in the past few years, um, but still not enough, I think. Most scholarship early on would duly note, oh, yes, lots of people come who aren't Muslim but it wouldn't talk at all about what it meant to those people to go to this place. And so um, for two reasons, because my background is far more actually, I think, in the study of Hinduism than it is in the study of Islam, uh, but also because I saw sort of a huge gap in the literature, my focus in sort of talking about the different kinds of people who go to Muslim saint shrines, and you see this clearly in the book, is people who don't actually have a Muslim background, though there are significant um, representatives of both the Shia and the Sunni tradition in my book, you know, the people that I focus on by and large don't know very much about Islam before they come to a place like Hussein Tikri for healing. Um, so my focus was on non-Muslim pilgrims, despite sort of the very clear uh, Muslim history of the place. You know, it's in a Muslim princely state. It's funded by the Hoja community. Uh, and the kinds of people I think the the question was originally, you know, what kind of people come? Well, primarily people. It sort of mirrors the demographics of India itself, right, where Muslims are a a minority. So any Muslim saint shrine that I've been to, uh, certainly Hussein Tekari, this is true, most of the time, most people who go there actually don't have a Muslim background. Uh, So, you know, it's your other religions of the subcontinent, you know, Christianity and Hinduism, uh, Sikhism, uh, Jains as well, you know, any, 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 any religion you can possibly think of has representatives who are going to Muslim St. Trines, particularly for healing. So could you say more about why would Hindus want to visit a Muslim St. Shrine? I think particularly it's aside from, you know, maybe some curious religious studies, people in the academy and other people as well. I think Americans don't usually like you go to temples or religious places that are outside of their tradition, right. especially like on a regular basis even. So could you say something about how, how we could understand why Hindus would go to this Muslim place? Yes. Uh, another reason that the book is subtitled Ambiguously Islamic Place, Everyday Healing in an Ambiguously Islamic Place, is um, because whether or not the shrine is regarded as Islamic by non-Muslim patrons and what they think of as Islamic, if they do regard it as sort of an Islamic, you know, or a Muslim place varies tremendously depending on the background of the person and sort of where they are in the course of their healing process. So I'm going to, I'm going to give you um, some reasons and 
they're, they're, they're they just, I don't think we would have time to go through. Sure, uh, sure. There are almost as many reasons as there are people, but here are a couple of the, of the big ones. First of all, uh, and I, this was one of the more interesting things that I think I, I ultimately found is that if people prior to really serious ethnographic work being done on Muslim saint shrines in India, if people thought at all or about what it might mean to non-Muslims to be in a place like this, they sort of say, well, you know, it's Pakistan, it's devotion for the, which is the, you know, a, a form of religiosity that all South Asian communities share. And so it's about devotion to the saint. And that's primarily how we can explain the experience of people going there, which is true. I, it's not that I certainly found that to be a part of the reason that non-Muslim pilgrims find these sites so attractive and so therapeutic. But in spending a lot of time there and getting to know some people quite well over a number of years, it became clear as well that sort of the opposite sort of relationship was also um, going on where the Muslim site would be regarded as exotically or dangerously other. Uh, And part of the therapeutic value of going there is sort of knowing that you're going somewhere that's completely outside of the world that you live in most of the time in a way that's almost socially unacceptable, almost dangerous. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that's one surprising, at least maybe a little bit disturbing as well, uh, attraction that I found non-Muslim pilgrims having to the place is that, oh, this place is ritually impure. This place is dangerous. This place is, um, it's transgressive for me to go here. It's transgressive for me to become friends with um, not just Muslims, but Muslims from different caste communities, all of these things. So that's a major element of the attraction. And I think also a major element of therapeutic power of these places. So that's one. Mm-hmm. Another is uh, the fact that the rituals uh, of healing that are performed at a place like Hussein Tikri and at a lot of Muslim saint shrines are quite unstructured and often without a religious leader sort of directing them. So they can be in some ways very self-directed. And for people who are dealing with uh, problems with extended families, uh, frustrations with sort of their economic situation, uh, what we would call psychological problems particularly that may ultimately result in physical problems, just stress causing illness. Uh, Having a very open-ended repertoire of rituals is potentially incredibly therapeutic because depending on what you want a ritual to mean or what you want to have happen, you can understand, you can take sort of, you can understand the ritual in any number of ways and you can perform the ritual in any number of ways and sort of see if it works for you and intuit whether it does or not. So speaking very generally, the rituals at Muslim saint shrines in particular um, are open-ended in a way that is somewhat unique in the subcontinent uh, and therefore potentially extremely therapeutic to anyone, not just, you know, Muslim or non-Muslim. Uh, and that's, I think, another reason that they're very attractive places to people and ultimately places that people find very therapeutic. Mm-hmm. And could you also say something about, you in your book, you write about what it's like to be there as a woman and a Westerner, as someone who kind of stands out. So could you say something about how that affected your experience and if there were other non-South Asians that frequented these places? Yes, I can talk a a little bit about that. I think that the most, let me think. Uh, Yes, so being a visible minority and a woman in South Asia generally, and at these shrines in particular, it means everybody notices you right away and everybody has, uh, you know, it's like any situation where you're a visible minority, there are stereotypes that you have to contend with. Um, And so in some ways that can be challenging. But one thing that I think um, was really helpful about being sort of a clear outsider is that as I got to know people well, I think in a way there's a certain personality type anyway that and this was true of the people that I got to know the best, certainly. There's a, where it, there's a certain personality type where if you're talking to someone who's so clearly outside of your world, you can be more open with them and not 
story about judgment um, because you realize they aren't going to judge you in the way maybe people in your community would, and they're also probably going away. Um, uh, so, so I think in that way, um, being sort of a visible minority and a clear sort of outsider was very helpful. Also, uh, particularly at a, at a Muslim saint shrine like Hussein Tegri, almost everyone who goes there is sort of um, <laughs> an outsider in one way or another. They they feel alienated from their home communities. And right. so going to a place like Hussein Tegri is sort of uh, like coming home in a way for people who feel really uh, like outside of where they should be. Yeah. Uh, so that makes everybody just a little bit more open anyway. There's a cosmopolitanism in some ways. Uh, at shrines like this that I, that I write a little bit about that I think also makes you know people more willing to talk um, with regard to sort of I've talked a little bit about being sort of a visible minority a Westerner uh, and I've talked mainly about how that sort of the positive effect that had in my research there were negative effects as well um, which I can talk about maybe uh, if we have time but I think it's also important to address the the gender part of your question mm-hmm. uh, being being a woman. I do write about this a little bit in the book. The, so I had a lot more access to domestic space and to female informants than most uh, male researchers, I think, would. And as I write in my book, that means that the focus in this project is far more on female pilgrims than male pilgrims. Just practically speaking, that was sort of how it had to be. Right. Um, but that doesn't make my research, ethnographic research, any more gendered than the ethnographic research of anyone else who works in South Asia. It's just that um, I think historically, anyway, there's been a tendency for you know women to talk a little bit more, women, female scholars, to talk a little bit more about gender or how their work is gendered than there has been for male scholars. So definitely being a woman made me focus more on women uh, subjects. Right. Uh, uh but at the same time, because I was sort of this, you know, outsider women, a Westerner, and sort of one of the stereotypes about Western women is we're horribly debased, <laughs> basically. Uh, right, you have a line in the book where you say that just sort of bluntly, and I found myself laughing because yeah, think, it was relatable, but you're just so straightforward about this perception. Yeah. It's exactly right. So, oh, well. But, you know, and it, you, you use it to your advantage. And so what that meant was, you know, everybody, I was already debased. So I was actually, you know, I could, you know, it was a much harder situation to manage because there would be sort of assumptions sometimes. But I could also, you know, spend time with male informants and sort of go into male places of power and talk to people. And it would just be OK because I was, you know, a Western female. So I think in some ways sort of how I presented in terms of my ethnicity and and my um, my nationality and my my gender was really helpful. Um, something I could really work with. Yeah. I think it's really interesting how you position your experience in the sense that everyone that going is going there is an, an outsider on some level and it's stepping into this, this realm of the other. And so in that way, you also have this camaraderie that you, you talk about when you're getting off the train that you felt this, yeah. this mixture of fear and camaraderie. Yeah, that's. I think that, I, and I did really mean that. I, I, I felt very similar to people there in some ways, in the ways that you talk about. Yeah. So this, the place, the this Hussein Tekri place mm-hmm. that you're you're talking about is so multidimensional, and there's so many different aspects we could talk about. But as expressed in the title of your book, and you talk about it in some detail. You talk about healing and the different meanings that that can have from spiritual or medicinal or what have you. So could you talk a little bit about what you mean by healing and how that manifests at the shrine? Yes. Uh, And again, it's it's hard to speak really generally because, um, you know, depending on where people are in their healing process, what their ethnic and religious background is, it, it does mean different things. But I think there are a few things that a lot of people share. Um, and I, and I trying to think one, one, uh, one thing certainly is the feeling that, um, being sick is kind of a, a, a social, uh, state, not an individual state mm-hmm. so that the measure of being healed is largely the measure of the extent to which one is able to reintegrate with one social group, family, uh, caste, friends, uh, geogra- whatever, 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 
whatever community uh, the the person who comes to Hussein Tehrir feels alienation from is the community they want to go back to. So whether it's what we would call a psychological or a spiritual or a mental or a physical problem that's keeping people from performing um, as they would like to in their community. For for most people, I guess the variety comes from whether it's what we would call a psychological or spiritual or an emotional or physical problem Mm -hmm. for most people, regardless of religious background, you know, the the measure of healing is the measure of the extent to which you're able to kind of resume normal social function. Uh, For men, often that means gainful employment for women. Often that means uh, um, children, not always, but often. So, so I think, I think speaking generally, when you're talking about healing at a place like Muslim uh, St. Shrines or Hussein Tegri in particular, you're talking about that kind of healing, just being reintegrated. Mm-hmm. So you also discussed a little about the types of experiences people have when they're experiencing healing or praying or however mm-hmm. you want to describe it. And one thing that you talk about is this idea of spirit possession. And of course, you problematize it. So yeah. could you say something about these types of experiences where people are breathing in irregular ways and also the way that scholars conceptualize this and how you want to reframe the way we understand this category of so-called spirit possession? Yeah, thanks um, for saying so-called. <laughs> um, yeah, in the book I choose to leave the term that would often be translated spirit possession untranslated. Uh, the term that people use at Hussein Tekri, which is used uh, widely at Muslim St. Shrine, certainly in northern India, is Hazri, which comes from an Urdu word that means presence. Mm. It has a, a history, a very clear history that's tied back to the notion of presence in a royal court. Uh, so if you sort of, or which is also in some ways like a, like a legal court, sort of the idea of going before the ruler and pleading your case and receiving justice that you have not been able to receive. So in the context of Hussein Tegri, when people talk about Hazri, the, the basic conceit is that they, they go, oh, not just at Hussein Tegri, but at certain kinds of Muslim saint shrines throughout northern India, certainly, and also southern India. The conceit is when you walk into that space, you're walking into the court of the saint. And the saint is functioning like uh, a ruler. Um, and as I write about in the book, this is a form that you see also in the Hindu tradition that there are some important differences. Um, and the language um, used in um, the Hindu context is similar to that of the Muslim saint shrine context. So you walk in, and at Hussein Tekri, and, and so it varies from place to place, but at Hussein Tekri, uh, the, the, the standard template is you walk in because you're having problems, you don't know what they are, you tie a little string to the screens of the on the windows, the metal sort of grating on the windows of the of the shrine, uh, which signals your readiness to receive the judgment of the saint. Uh, and then if someone's performed magic on you, uh, the idea is that in the course of being in the presence of the saint, the saint will begin um, at some point to discipline whatever malevolent spiritual presence has been placed inside of you, usually by magic, uh, by a magician who's been hired, usually by somebody you know well, often by a member of your family. That malevolent presence which has been put in you, which has been giving you the psychological, spiritual, physical problems, will begin to experience uh, a lot of distress uh, because the saint will begin physically um, punishing it, basically beating it. Uh, it's like I, say, I don't know if I say this actually in the book, but it is essentially using torture to elicit a confession, <laughs> whatever you think of that. Mm. Uh, that's what it is. And all of the violent activity that you see in the body of the person who's having hazari is sort of the, the malevolent spiritual presence reacting to this corporal punishment. And then in sort of the streamlined narrative that people will give about how hazari works, at a certain point, there will be a confession where the, the malevolent presence will say who sent it and how much was paid and what the motivation was. And then it will either be understood to leave of its own accord. The person uh, might cough up nails or glass or lemons or any number or the, you know, this, the, the, the food that into which the magic was, was put. Uh, all of these, the person might uh, hire somebody who works at the shrine to perform any one of a series of rituals to sort of trap the malevolent presence in something else. So there are all different ways that ultimately the presence can come out. But um, in the end, the result of Hazari ideally is that. Uh, the reason I didn't want to call it spirit possession is I thought that, I mean, the, 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 the shortest way to state it is I just thought that that placed the agency in entirely the wrong place and reflected a notion of selfhood that's really not operative mm-hmm. at Muslim St. Shrines. Uh, 
So, because in spirit possession, it sort of it was in that, and that, and sort of expanding on that. Well, let me think of just the most concise way to expand on that. What's most powerful, I think, about the practice of Hazri is sort of encoded in the name of the practice itself, which, as you recall, means presence, mm-hmm. right? So what's powerful about the practice is that the person has left their community and come to this new place. And for lots of different reasons, that's a transformative experience for them. Um, and it also means that the agency of the practice is not really located in them as a sort of a conscious, willing actor, or even in the the spirit as a conscious or willing actor, or even really in some ways in the saint as a conscious and willing actor, but in just the placement of the body in the shrine complex. Mm-hmm. And and for all of those reasons, because I think that's why it's powerful and how it works, it seemed that calling it spirit possession was really misleading. Um, and related to that, uh, spirit possession makes it sound like it's not a religious practice. It's like wacky out of controlness and it's associated with women. And, you know, you just, I found that really, the more that I was at Hussein Tegri, the more I saw clearly positivity is like a learned behavior. It It is a spiritual practice in that way. It's a discipline. Um, it's certainly a form of asceticism. Uh, it certainly uh, gives people who practice it the same kind of sort of, I guess you could say a cultural capital as people who uh, practice various forms of asceticism and the various sort of Sufi and Hindu traditions, all of that I saw clearly, you know, making primarily the women who practiced it sort of feel powerful and actually become powerful in their community. Sort of what they're doing is so physically demanding and so frightening that uh, to come through that, it makes them and people who know them sort of take note. And I also thought that whole aspect of the power of the practice was lost in calling it spirit possession, which just sounds like you've got some problems, you know? Right. So could you, could you, because you've got problems. Right. So could you distinguish between the open and hidden presence that you talk about? That's language that comes from the folks uh, at Hussein Tekri. So open or hidden presence, they'll categorize, this was another aspect just sort of why I thought talking about spirit possession, talking about how to do spirit possession was really misleading. Uh, open and hidden presence. So the baseline state of a person who has hazardy is that they have hazardy. And they categorize it in sort of two ways, open and hidden, as you say, so that um, if it's hidden, it means that, you know, you could be at home for many years and not really understand what was wrong. You have recurring physical problems. You feel anxious, all of these things. When you come to Hussein Chikri and you begin to sort of exhibit sort of this violent behavior that might get labeled spirit possession, that's what practitioners will call open hazardy. And so it's not like spirit possession in that way really either, where I think in English anyway, spirit possession, it means sort of the crazy behavior of, you know, like, the movie The Exorcist or something, the really what what in, in the language of Hazri would be only the open part. But is but because people who practice open Hazri conceptualize what Hazri is as something that encompasses both sort of the quote unquote crazy violent behavior and just being at home, not feeling well, that seemed to be a category that didn't fit at all with sort of the notion of spirit possession. And that was another reason that it seemed like an inappropriate label to put on the practice, because it isn't just the violent behavior at the shrine. It's also um, the state of feeling unwell elsewhere. Yeah. And so in addition to this ritual, I don't know if we can call it a ritual, but... I think I call it a practice. Okay, so in addition to this practice, another one of the important things that takes place at the shrine that you discuss is this particular type of incense, although as you explained, Mm -hmm. it's much more than incense. So could you say something about this as well? I can. Uh, The other uh, major practice, healing practice at Hussein Tekriya, Hazri is the uh, open Hazri, is the, the, the major healing practice and it's often something that's brought on by the inhalation of this particular kind of incense that's burned at Hussein Tegri and is strongly associated with Muslim saint shrine culture throughout the subcontinent. Uh, at a certain point late in my research, I I did 
sort of a formal survey of people's sort of understandings of what this kind of incense was and, you know, why it's effective for healing and what sort of places it's associated with. Uh, and, well, maybe before I talk about the results of that survey, I should just say very briefly how it's dispensed at Hussein Tekri. It's really simple and straightforward. The shrine attendants, and this is, the shrine attendants go into go into the, the shrines. They stand before the the objects that are associated with the various martyrs of Karbala, uh, which come more or less straight out of, sort of Shia practice in South Asia. Uh, they light uh, the incense. It sends off huge clouds of smoke right away. Uh, they recite some passages from the Quran over it. They pray for the soul of the martyr. And then they take that incense and they walk out of the shrine and they walk through uh, two parallel lines of pilgrims. So the pilgrims sort of are facing one another and there's this path that's created by their bodies. And the shrine attendant just walks between the two lines of pilgrims uh, with this container holding, you know, the little bond with the billowing smoke and everybody inhales the smoke, is enveloped in the smoke. Um, I'm fairly certain I'm going to die of lung cancer at a very young age. Oh. I mean, much of this stuff, actually, you know, it's terrible to say. A lot, of, a lot of smoke is what I'm saying. It's not like a little incense stick. It's like clouds of this white um, mm. fragrant smoke. So it's a really sensual experience. And it's usually under the, that's the, that's the substance that often brings on the, the open positive in people. So the question then I addressed in countless conversations and then kind of codified far later in my research in sort of this survey that I did was, well, why is the smoke effective? Why does it cause hazardy? Why is it powerful? And uh, this gets back to a point I made earlier about the one of the reasons that I think these rituals at Muslim Saint Shrines are so effective and therapeutic is they're incredibly open-ended. <laughs> because what I found in this survey is almost anything that I put out there is uh, a possible reason that the smoke would be therapeutic some people right. thought was the case. So is it, is it, is it powerful because it's, you know, is it powerful because it's white? Is it powerful because it's hot? Is it powerful because it's cooling? Is it powerful because the saints are present in it? Is it powerful because jinn are present in it? Is it powerful because it's, it's perfectly pure? Is it powerful because it's white, like, uh, milk? Uh, is it powerful? I could I could go on for you know how does it make you feel does it make you feel heavy or light does it make you feel angry or happy um, you know talking about it in terms of body in terms of emotion in terms of its physicality in terms of who or what might be in it uh, all of the all of the above is sort of the, what the what, I, what I, the survey sort of produced is the answer as far as how pilgrims perceive the the efficacy of the smoke and interesting there, there wasn't a strong correlation between how people perceived the efficacy of the smoke and what their ethnic or religious background was uh-huh. and so now there there isn't the idea that or is there that there's some type of like narcotic effect going on yeah you know I did a little uh research on this after the fact, and uh, so far as I, I can tell no. Um, and in fact, what this, I mean, this is frankincense in English, this, uh-huh. kind of, this kind of incense. And I did find some, uh, you know, scientific literature that I'm in no position to evaluate <laughs> that says that it's actually been demonstrated that frankincense is good for uh, different kinds of arthritis and rheumatism. So it actually has a therapeutic effect. Hmm. Uh, so on that level, I think that there's a, a potentially a physical, uh, you know, I don't know what you want to call it, quantifiable effect that the smoke has but in terms of it being a narcotic or something that makes you high uh speaking from my own experience anyway i can say that's not the case it just sort of is you know makes your throat hurt (laughs) that's about it yeah and also i'm because um because there's a pretty widely held belief that you can perform hazari for someone else uh, or you can perform all these healing rituals on behalf of a family member who refuses to come or can't come. Uh, you definitely can't attribute the therapeutic effect of the smoke or even the hazari to uh, factors that are exclusively physical or related to the body of the practitioner. Uh-huh. There's, there's, a, there's a social tension there, regardless of what the, the hazari or the smoke of Loban is doing to mm-hmm. the practitioner. So if we could change gears a little bit and get back to one of the things that we were discussing earlier, which is how you had special access to women and you devote a chapter of the book to discussing women's narratives. Yeah. Could you, could you say something 
briefly about maybe one of those narratives or one of these anecdotes that stands out in your mind that tells us about the types of themes you're discussing in the monograph? Yes. I'll, I'll talk a little bit about a, a woman in that chapter, what I call Priya, which is not her real name, uh, because she's a really good example of a couple of, she's representative of sort of things that I observed in non-Muslim pilgrims more generally, particularly women. Uh, also, she's a really interesting person and a lovely person to talk about. Uh, so over the years that she went to Hussein Tekri, uh for problems that she never uh, hadn't, well, in the book anyway, she never fully understands, but uh, clearly involved magic, clearly involved, therefore, an inability to be at home and problems with her family, sort of fighting with her family. Um, a lot of detail there um, that I can't get into right now. Through her years of going to Hussein Tekri, she begins to adopt um, forms of dress and ritual practice that are explicitly and unambiguously Islamic. So she starts uh, covering her hair, uh, in a, you know, which is the practice that you see in Hindu populations as well, but the style of doing it that she adopts is, is explicitly um, Muslim. Right. She, she, she experiments with wearing a burqa and starts wearing one regularly. She, um, she learns to pray namaz, you know, doing the Arabic phonetically. She observes uh, the, the big fast of the Islamic tradition, right? She's sort of doing all this. She starts, um, you know, over, over a course of a number of years, she, she learns all this from various Muslim mentors at Hussein Tekri. Uh, but all of this that she, she finds therapeutic for different reasons that she sort of talks about. But if asked explicitly, oh, well, does this mean that you've become a Muslim? She would say, well, no, I mean, mm-hmm. of course not, right? And that sort of raises this question of, well, what, you know, in a South Asian context, if you can speak that generally in an Indian context, I don't know. Uh, what makes a person Muslim or Hindu or not. It's obviously really complicated. If you have somebody who from the outside is dressing and beginning to eat, she changed her dietary habits, uh, you know, pray uh, in a way that's recognizably Islamic, but is still, you know, asserting a Hindu identity. Sort of what does that mean? Why is that? But what does that mean? Right. Yeah. It just, it- just adds to this multi-layered, I think, complicated way of assessing the different aspects of human identity and religious identity in, in the South Asian context. And so this relates to something else I wanted to ask you, which, so you mentioned about how Hindus and other uh, religious groups in India, besides quote-unquote Muslims, are are happy to visit the shrine. There's no kind of doctrinal problem. But you mentioned that Muslims are less likely to visit Hindu temples, for example. Could you could you tell us a little bit about that? I guess the first thing I should say is that uh, I, I think it is true that they are less likely to, but it doesn't mean that they don't. Um, there's been some writing on some sites, particularly in South India, where that you know you have sort of patronage of uh, goddess shrines by people who would identify as Muslim if you asked them. Uh, so that it's not that it doesn't happen, right. but. I do think, um, I guess I'm hesitating because this wasn't something that I, I gave a lot of ethnographic attention to at the time, sort of sense of talking about the reasons for that. But I I think it's fair to say in a general way that, um, as Muslims in India particularly have become more conscious of their identity as Muslim and as sort of communal violence marks people as Muslim or Hindu in a way that's a little bit more, centered and concrete than maybe it was in the past. Mm-hmm. Um, along with that comes in the Muslim community, I think generally, again, speaking very generally in India, kind of a looking outward to the global Muslim community, their sort of camaraderie and um, identity, because there's such, you know, everybody knows this communalist rhetoric in India that it's, not hard to feel alienated if you're identified as a Muslim in some ways, uh, mm-hmm. if you pay attention at all. So it, that has the effect of looking outward and then various sort of 20th century reformist currents in the Muslim world, a lot of which, as we know, is response to sort of colonial presence around the world, sort mm-hmm. of this burdening of Islam in a particular direction. 
uh, informs the way that Muslims think about themselves in India. And part of the consequence of that is it sort of makes them less inclined to go to a place that is Hindu and religious. That was a, a very anxious and long answer. I'm sorry. Yeah, no, I think, I think, I think what you say about contextualizing that it's not just some kind of doctrinal issue, but it has to do with it is my, my minority conceptions and colonialism. It's much more complicated than just this is forbidden or something like yeah, that. So I think that's a really good point. Yeah. That's not, that's not where it's primarily coming from. Yeah. So sort of ra- wrapping things up, your your book is obviously geared towards academics on one level. It, is there another audience that you're interested in appealing to, or maybe another way of asking that? Do you do you feel like your the research you did for your book opens up conversations that you can have with friends and family about these sort of broader issues that you look at? Uh, I wrote the book in a way that was um, I hoped extremely accessible. Yeah, and I, and I think it was, by the way. Thank you. I, I wanted to, it, there's, I think there's an anxiety that I share in some ways uh, by sort of academic, academics or academic writing is sort of, if it, if it's accessible, does that mean it's, it's good or it's serious? Um, so sort of, I wrestled with that anxiety in writing this, but I just, you know, I, I thought in the end, you know, Ultimately, a book is is a creative. It's 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 the product of a creative process, and it's probably just better to embrace that and write something that seems really accessible and beautiful that you think reflects the reality of the people and the place, um, rather than you know the alternative, which would be to shy away from anything that feels literary, um, and you know because you you want to seem serious and right. and you know you. I don't know. I don't know. I don't want to say accurate, but it, it was obviously I didn't make anything up in this in this book. But I wrote it in a way that was I, I thought like I don't even know if literary is the right word. I just wanted people to read it and feel like they were there and uh, relate to the people that I talk about in detail as as people and characters. The way you would, just all of that. So I, I I certainly wrote it hoping that um, more than it would be read by more than just sort of my my colleagues and friends in the academy, I certainly wrote it in a way that, that I, I, you know, having said that, I mean, who in, who in this country reads anymore? Certainly <laughs> like much less read something that, you know, is put up by a university press. So I guess, uh, you know, I, I had, I had hoped that it would have, you know, if, if you, if you picked it up and didn't know anything about South Asia, uh, that you would enjoy it and and learn a lot about sort of the way Islam and actually also Hinduism actually uh, are practiced. So I think if if you were not an academic and you happened to find a copy of my book, you could open it and read it and enjoy it and learn a lot. I don't know how much that's happening. I think uh, more realistically and hopefully, I have a lot of colleagues and friends who have taught this book in undergraduate classroom settings. Uh, sort of a wide range of institutions and I've had really positive experiences and I've had the chance to visit some of those colleagues and talk to their students mm-hmm. after they read the book. And it's just been so you know, heartening uh, to sort of listen to the questions that students have and to sort of talk to them about Muslim saint shrines. And then I guess I can also add sort of in my own teaching, I'm a, I'm a professor at Baruch College. It's part of the City University of New York. One of the sound bites about the institution is it's the most diverse undergraduate institution in the country. Of course it is. It's New York City, right? Uh, and that means that I get just about, you know, it means the first day of class, I can't pronounce anyone's name except the South Asian <laughs> class, right? So it's great. Uh, and, and it, you know, when I teach this in the context of my Islam class, I get students with a wide range of ethnic backgrounds who are all kind of identifying as Muslim. Most of them are first-generation Americans. And, the you know, being introduced to this kind of... Uh, uh, it's just very gratifying the conversations that this this has sparked in my very very diverse Baruch classrooms as well. You know, South Asian students saying yes, 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 this is how it is, or really, this is how it is, or students who have a Muslim background but aren't South Asian saying really, <laughs> or saying oh yes, yes, it's very similar to something. And just all of these conversations that it sparked, and then obviously for the non-Muslim and non-South Asian students, just the the seeing seeing how very different practice is from 
what they might think Hinduism is from reading, you know, a popularly recognized Hindu text like the Bhagavad Gita, for example. Right. Yeah. I mean, I, I think that's so important that you know, young young students are exposed to how complicated religion is, and that you know, if you know, as the example that you gave, you know, someone can fast and cover their head and learn Arabic, but does that make them Muslim? Well, I don't know. It depends who you ask, right? So. I think, it who you ask. I think the examples you give and the way you talk about it really complicates that question and raises just the kinds of questions I I think that undergraduates could really benefit from. So I'm glad to hear that you've had a positive experience with that in the classroom. Yeah. And so we've taken up a bit of your time now, and thank you again so much for joining us today. If I, If we could conclude by asking, uh, what are you working on next? Is it departing from this research or complementing it? What, what are your future publication plans? I guess, I guess it's both departing and, and complementing what I've done so far. Uh, the, I guess there are two primary projects at this point. The first uh, is what I hope will ultimately be a book-length cross not cross-cultural, but a book-length study of discourses and practices of magic in South Asian communities, urban South Asian communities. But the because obviously a lot of stuff that I didn't really use explicitly in this first book is sort of stuff about how Muslims and non-Muslims think about magic, um, you know, and what it is in in a South Asian cultural context. Mm -hmm. Uh, But the the new piece has actually come out of all the conversations I've had over the years with my students of South Asian origin at Baruch, where inevitably when I teach this material, you know, after class, I, you know, they come up to me and I get all manner of reaction, (laughs) everything from, you know, I'm very sorry that you're teaching this because you make us look like superstitious to the non-South Asians to, uh, Actually, I'm very, very afraid that someone's done magic on me and I don't know who to talk to about it. So there's a real, I guess the, this, this first project will be an ethnographic study that is partially based in urban North India and sort of communities there, but is also based in sort of the South Asian diaspora, both Hindu and Muslim in New York City, uh, particularly, I think, sort of the, the, the younger people, I guess you could say, and sort of looking at how they think about the looking at how they think about their identity as Hindu or Muslim in sort of the diaspora context, but through the lens of sort of losing this discourse of magic, I think ultimately, which is so central in some ways to how people think about and talk about their religious identity in India, certainly in the context of healing or dealing with problems in one's life. It, it just, it can't be taken for granted or used as a discourse in the same way in the South Asian diaspora, at least not that I've seen so far. And so I think that this project will be about tracing the consequences of that loss, both in terms of how people cope with these serious problems um, and how they think about their Hinduism or their Islam in, in the absence of this central South Asian discourse when you're talking about South Asia in the geographical context of South Asia. So that's that's one, and I guess in some ways that grows out of what I've done so far. And then the other is an ethnography of the rise of the cult of the god of misfortune in Hinduism, uh, who used to be understandably a god you would avoid because mm-hmm. misfortune, right? right? Someone you could only pay attention to and you know patronize a particular caste community in North India that was associated with him if you were having serious problems otherwise you would you know just steer clear um but someone sort of the, the rise of the cult of the god of misfortune in in northern certainly northern urban indian settings particularly delhi where i've done most of my research so far is staggering um one is staggering in the sense that you see these shani shrines everywhere now and he's become incredibly popular and so i've done um I guess going on about a year now total of ethnographic research in a couple of different communities sort of around this question of why, why is Shani so popular now? Uh, nobody really wanted anything to do with him 20 or so years ago. And I guess in some ways that grew out of this project because often people with a Hindu background who go to a Muslim saint shrine have at a certain point done various things to try to 
determine whether their problems are the result of something that Shani is doing. And so in the course of researching this first book, I actually heard quite a bit about Shani and became interested in him through that, that, that contact. Great. Thank you so much for telling us about your future plans. And once again, thank you for joining us to, during the interview to tell us about your book. Thank you for having me again. That was my conversation with Carla Bellamy, professor of sociology and anthropology at Baruch College, about her wonderful book, The Powerful Ephemeral, Everyday Healing in an Ambiguously Islamic Place, published by University of California Press, 2011. Thanks for listening.